Orwell found the tension within SCOBY completely unbelievable. He said, how could somebody really believe that something would send them to hell and yet still believe that they were morally compelled to do that thing? Hey, everyone. You're listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a podcast in which philosophers, theologians, and literary critics discuss how literature can help us think more deeply about love, happiness, and meaning in human life. I'm your host, Jennifer Frey. I am an associate professor of philosophy at the University of South Carolina. You can follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter at Jen Frey, and I'm on Instagram at Professor Frey. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter. Our handle is at EudaimoniaPod. In this episode, I speak with the theologian Fritz Bauerschmidt about Graham Greene's novel, The Heart of the Matter. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Sacred and Profane Love. I am really happy to be joined by Professor Fritz Bauerschmidt this morning. Fritz is a professor of theology at Loyola, Maryland in Baltimore, and he's the author of many books. His most recent book is called The Essential Summa. It's like a guide and commentary to selected passages of the Summa Theologiae, and I think it's really great, and you should definitely check it out. Welcome to the podcast, Fritz. Well, thank you, Jen. Glad to be here. I'm really excited about today's podcast. It's hard for me to overstate how excited I am because we are going to be talking about Graham Greene's The Heart of the Matter. And I hadn't read this since early undergrad, and I forgot what a sucker punch this story is. This this is a tough one. Um, yeah, I actually I gave a talk on uh, some of the novels of Graham Greene a couple of years ago. And I don't think I had read The Heart of the Matter since I was an undergrad. So it was very interesting in my 50s to go back and reread something that I had read in my 20s and kind of the way in which it struck me differently. It was many decades ago. Yeah, I think it hit me harder this time. (laughs) I think it definitely hit me harder. For listeners, we're not going to go over who Graham Greene is or anything like that, because I've already done an episode on Graham Greene where we do all of that. So you should go back and listen to the episode on the power and the glory. I'll link it in the show notes. So we're just going to jump right in to this novel the heart of the matter. So Fritz, I'm just going to invite you to kind of tell us, you know, what's, what's going on in this novel? Who are the main characters? Right. So the, the novel is set during the second world war, um, in an unnamed British colony in West Africa. Uh, most critics think that it's supposed to be Sierra Leone because that's where green himself was posted for a couple of years, uh, during the second world war. Uh, And so the protagonist uh, in the story is a police officer named Henry Scobie. Um, And he's been in Africa for 15 years. Uh, He's more or less settled into life in the the colony, but uh, kind of a nagging unhappiness he has is his wife, Louise, who's lonely. She feels excluded from the small community of British colonials who live there. She feels like they're looked down upon, not fully included. Scobie feels bound to Louise because of a shared grief over the death of their only child. At the same time, he feels separated from her because of their inability to talk about this this tragedy. So Louise longs to... Uh, leave whatever this colony is, Sierra Leone, and go to South Africa where she has friends. And of course, Scobie, you know, civil servant, doesn't have the ready cash to let her go to South Africa. So he borrows money from this unscrupulous Syrian merchant uh, who in various ways, you know, is kind of in the background of a lot of the action of the story. Uh, And so she leaves, goes to South Africa for a stay of undetermined length. So he doesn't know when she's coming back. And I guess the implication might be, you know, if she's coming. Right. So while she's gone, Scobie meets this young British woman, 19-year-old woman, um, Helen Rolt. And she's the survivor of a ship that had been torpedoed by a German submarine. And in this attack on the ship, her newlywed husband is killed. So... Scobie initially reacts with pity to Helen, and this is a kind of a significant 
part of his character. He at least thinks of himself as somebody who's often driven by pity for others. Mm -hmm. And uh, before long, however, they begin this surreptitious love affair. Now, Scobie, you learn fairly early in the story, along with his wife, Louise, is, is a Catholic. And Scobie knows that his action is wrong, but he keeps trying to justify it. Sometimes he does it in the name of love. More often, he does it in the name of pity. Well, then, in a not completely unpredictable turn of the plot, his wife, Louise, mm -hmm. returns from South Africa. And Scobie tries to break off the affair with Helen. But That's right. she does not react well to this. Um, and he fears that if he breaks off the affair, she'll lose her will to live, right? She, she lost her husband. Um, she's all alone. She's dependent upon him emotionally. And if he breaks off with her, she'll lose her, her will to live and simply sort of fade away. Um, or alternatively, um, and I think this this is an interesting in light of the nature of their relationship. He's worried that she will turn to empty and meaningless uh, sexual encounters to fulfill to fill the void left by the end of their relationship. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, and this is really the dilemma that Scobie faces, he fears that if he leaves Louise, she'll be shattered. And he also, as a Catholic, takes seriously the fact that he's taken this permanent vow when they got married. The way he puts it at one point is that he has two people's happiness in his hands and he's got to learn how to juggle. Yeah, he's kind of, he's, you know, through his sin, through his adultery, he's created this contradiction in his life, right? And so right. now he has this problem. I have to resolve this contradiction and you can't, <laughs> right? You, you, The only way that right. you can deal with the contradiction is to remove... Right, it's yeah, source. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and of course, the the juggling act he's trying to enact is made more complicated because Louise, newly returned after this period of separation, says that she, what she really wants is for her and Scobie to go to Mass and receive communion together. And as a, sort of as a sign of her renewed dedication to their marriage. Mm -hmm. uh, right, but also like she knows. She knows that he's... Yeah cheating on her <laughs> there's some sense of she at least has a suspicion and this would be a way of alleviating the suspicion because she knows that if he's continuing an adulterous affair he's not going to go receive communion that'd be a mortal sin right right well it's interesting that she feels she can put him in that position because it's it strongly suggests that she believes he's a good enough catholic not to commit an act of sacrilege. So, you know, not a good enough Catholic to be faithful in his marriage, but a good enough Catholic to not, you know, eat and drink right, spiritual right. death. And he does make, I mean, he makes an attempt to get out of this dilemma. He decides he's going to go confess his adultery in the sacrament of penance and, uh, you know, be absolved and then he can go receive communion and, seems like a reasonable way out. But the problem for Scobie is in order to receive absolution, he has to make a firm purpose of amendment, right? To not commit the sin again. Right. And because he is so convinced that Helen can't survive without him, he can't do that. So he goes into the confessional and, you know, the priest says, well, do you, you know, are you going to end this, you know, adulterous relationship? And he says, well, I can't. And so he had, he, he leaves the confessional right? Unabsolved and sort of mm -hmm. resigned to his fate. And, and Green talks about him leaving the confessional. He's looking around the church. And this is a really interesting, you know, description, you know, the, the, the dead figure of God upon the cross, the plaster virgin, the hideous stations representing a series of events that happened a long time ago. It seemed to him that he had only left for his exploration of the territory of despair. Right. Right. That's such a great Graham Greene line, yeah. right? The territory of despair. It's where so much of uh, Greene's novels take place, right? Right. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, his main predicament, it's not just that he has created this contradiction in his life, although he's done that, is that he's trying to live without hope, right? And I think that was, in a way, that was the case before he even met Helen, 
Because, I mean, if we kind of drill down into the text, I mean, part one is really just about how unhappily married these two are, right? And for Scobie in particular, I mean, we don't really hear all that much from these women or what we, you know, it, mostly we're given a window into Scobie's psychology and perception of things. But look, I mean, he has stopped loving his wife in any meaningful sense, right? And in some way, he's just given up on this marriage. So it's not surprising that he kind of falls in love with a, with a young, beautiful, vulnerable woman who needs him, right? Because that is something that would be very attractive to anyone miserable in a marriage. But yeah, I mean, he's basically just feels himself as duty bound to his wife. This is page 21. The less he needed Louise, the more conscious he became of his responsibility for her happiness. When he called her name, he was crying like Canute against a tide, the tide of her melancholy and disappointment. <laughs> I mean, he feels like it's so heavy to him, this responsibility for making his wife happy. But he, like, can't make her happy because he doesn't actually love her. And this manifests itself. I mean, and she knows. Right. She's not stupid, Louise. And she's nobody's fool. There's this incredible passage on page 26 that is just sad and depressing, but also very realistic, I think, about a lot of ruts that people find themselves in. So this is the final paragraph on page 26. He never listened while his wife talked. He worked steadily to the even current of sound, but if a note of distress were struck, he was aware of it at once. Like a wireless operator with a novel open in front of him, he could disregard every signal except the ship's symbol and the SOS. He could even work better while she talked than when she was silent, for so long as his eardrum registered those tranquil sounds, the gossip of the club, comments on the sermons preached by Father Rank, the plot of a new novel, even complaints about the weather, he knew that all was well. It was silence that stopped him working, silence in which he might look up and see tears waiting in the eyes for his attention. You know, I mean, that's pretty well, revelatory, it's a, you know, it's a particularly striking passage because, I mean, one of the things that rereading The Heart of the Matter a couple of years ago Made me made me do was to go back and look at uh, Herbert Fingerett's book on self deception, uh, because I think there you know and we can talk about this more. There's this significant question about whether Scobie's impression of himself as somebody who is you know driven by these noble motives of pity and responsibility whether these are actually who he is. But you know Fingerett gives this account mm -hmm. of, of self deception. He's trying to move away from accounts of self-deception as consciousness and false consciousness. And he, he wants to build it into an account of knowing in which he makes this distinction between taking account and focusing attention, mm -hmm. right? So he says, we take account of things all the time. You see, you know, like we're driving, right? I mean, we're, when we're driving, you know, we're taking account, we're following the signals of the road and all that. But our attention might actually be focused on something else entirely, a story we're listening to on the radio, right, right? or a song, what we're going to do mm -hmm. when we get to our destination. And, you know, I think we've all had that experience of you, you're driving, you get to your destination, and you're like, well, how exactly is it that I got here, right? And so in Fingerhead's right. account of self-deception, what he, what he says is that this ordinary distinction within consciousness between taking account and focused attention is involved in self-deception as well, because what we're doing in self-deception, it's not that, that we are not conscious of the things we're deceiving ourselves about, but we are able to focus our attention, right? So like you're working on you know, mm -hmm. something at your computer and you're focused on that and you are, your children are playing out in the yard and you're not focused on that, right? But if one of those children starts screaming, you. Mm -hmm. It's not like that's completely outside of your consciousness, right? You can instantly shift, right? Right. So right. Fingerette wants to say self-deception is like that. And so I think it's interesting in that passage that in some ways Scobie is describing the exact 
kind of structure of consciousness that makes self-deception possible. And I just think self-deception is so central to what's yeah. going on in, in Scoby. Yeah, well, I love the connection between attention and, and self-deception. I think that's, I'm, I'm very attracted to that view generally, that ways in which we end up being deceived have to do with failures of attention. What I find so striking, there's a lot that I find striking about Scobie, but his whole shtick about himself, you know, his, his whole narrative that he tells himself, the, the story that he tells himself is that he loves both of these women, right? And he has to sacrifice himself for their sake, right? So sort of like make a noble sacrifice of his own happiness. He does not love it's his It's not wife. clear he loves Helen either. Right, To exactly. be honest. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's not clear that he knows how to love anyone. And so this whole narrative that he's constructed about himself and his actions, it just looks like it bumps up against reality in a very uncomfortable way, <laughs> you know, because you can't love your wife for whatever your motive is. Maybe it's just duty. Maybe it's pity. Whatever you think your motive is, you're not really loving her if you neglect her to this extent, right? Where you you don't listen to anything she says, right? You don't help her. And even like there's this other passage where he's talking about how he feels protective of her when other people criticize her for her social failure. And he's like, what right have you to criticize her? This is my doing. This is what I've made of her. She wasn't always like this. He only seems to see his wife reflected through himself. He, it's like he never Well, one of the things her. I think that's interesting narratively in the novel is how it's largely told from Scobie's perspective, right? So you see these women through Scobie's eyes, but then there are these little vignettes, particularly mm -hmm. with Louise, his wife, where she sort of breaks through as a kind of, as her own character unmediated by his gaze, right? As if Green is kind of cluing mm -hmm. you into the fact that Scobie is maybe not giving you reality. You're getting, you know, Scobie's vision on mm -hmm. on the world and on himself, which might not be entirely mm -hmm. reliable, right? So Scobie thinks of himself as, you know, he, he says at one point, it's my job to look after others. I'm conditioned to serve. Well, is that really true? Right. I mean, is, is does he really, does he really look after others? Right, right. Yeah, and also, has he become singularly obsessed with this self-conception, the self-image of the guy who bears all the responsibility, the guy who suffers nobly for others? Because it kind of looks like, he, actually, he's not willing to suffer for others, not in any meaningful sense. Right. Because maybe it would be a sacrifice to really pay attention to his wife, but it's not a sacrifice he's willing to make for her. Maybe it would be a sacrifice to actually try to help her be happy rather than whatever it is we want to say that that he's doing. And I think it's interesting. There are all these places in the novel where he admits that he's in love with failure and that he's incapable of enjoying success. And I wonder what you what you make of those passages. There are probably well, four I mean, or five it is, of them. It's sort of uh, interesting, and I mean, to go back to this issue of, of self-deception, in, in a later essay, uh, Fingeret has a discussion where he uses as the example somebody who's sort of a failed academic, right? They never get the tenure-track position. They, you know, and of course, there's plenty of fine, you know, uh -huh. well-qualified people who never get tenure-track jobs these days. But the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves to account for our lack of success. What we don't want to say is, I'm sorry, I just, 
you know, I'm just not quite creative enough, or I'm sorry, I'm, I'm really not that good a teacher, or, you know, I really have, I'm bereft of original ideas. Instead, we tell ourselves these other stories. And it seems to me that Scobie is sort of like that, right? He's coming up constantly with excuses for his, sort of the mediocrity of his life, right? And right. I think it involves, to go back to this issue of attention, a kind of a studious, in a, a studious but genuine inattention to the people and the circumstances around him. Right. Yeah, there's this. So I'll, I'll go to another passage that really just jumped out at me. Um, this is page 56. This is just after he's like found this letter. It, he's doing his police job. He found a letter and a toilet. <laughs> um, and he's sort of like taking care of that and he's talking about how he has to go home now and now scoby thought i must return home i shall put the car away in the garage and ali will come forward with his torch to light me to the door she will be sitting there between two draughts for coolness and i shall read on her face the story of what she has been thinking all day she will have been hoping that everything is fixed that I shall say, I've put your name down at the agents for South Africa, but she'll be afraid that nothing so good as that will ever happen to us. She'll wait for me to speak, and I shall try to talk about anything under the sun to postpone seeing her misery. It would be waiting at the corners of her mouth to take possession of her whole face. He knew exactly how things would go. It had happened so often before. He rehearsed every word, going back into his office, locking his desk, going down to his car, People talk about the courage of condemned men walking to the place of their execution. Sometimes it needs as much courage to walk with any kind of bearing towards another person's habitual misery. He's, I mean, this is why I'm saying, like, he's given up. Like, Well, and he's also created he's an trying. image of Louise in his own mind of somebody who's also given up, right? And that this, in some ways, authorizes right. him to behave towards her in a certain kind of way. But it's really not about Louise at all. It's all about Scobie, right? I mean, right. you know, he knows what she's going to say, right? So there's nothing she can do or say that will surprise him, right? Right. So, but it's all really in service of, you know, fostering or justifying his own sense of despair. So she's not really an independent right. person. Right. She's just this kind of re reflection. Uh, she's like for Scobie, she's become like a mirror in which he sees his own unhappiness. Yeah, I think that's really perceptive, actually. I mean, how much of this is just Scobie like projecting his own misery onto those around and him? To go back to your comment about you know him not loving Louise. Well, how could you love someone who's simply a mirror of your own unhappiness? Right. Right. Um, there is no sense of an other there to be loved. Right. You're right. just your own self-projection. That's right. Yeah. And I think that's reflected in the fact that he doesn't really treat her like a person. He treats her like a thing that he needs to manage or take care of or something. But he doesn't actually interact with her as if she's a human being. Yeah. She's like a chronic disease that he has. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think he discusses his suffering in that way sometimes. He, he, he characterizes it as a disease that he knows at some point Helen will catch. He has this strange sense of fate about him. There are sometimes, though, when I wonder if something isn't breaking through. So there is this scene that you briefly alluded to was like a, what was it, like a... It was like a boat wreck or something. The the, sh um, the shipwreck where where uh, Helen's yeah. Helen's boat is sunk. Yeah, that's right. And I think it's that same shipwreck where there's like a little girl, right, who dies. Um, yeah. who dies. Yeah, and um, and of course it reminds him of his of his own daughter. So his own daughter died, I think, when she was like seven. Right. Some somewhere around there, and and he wasn't there. Um, he, he just got a telegram informing him that his daughter had died. So he's confronted with this girl who, you know, is, is probably going to die. And he prays, right? He, he says a prayer. Father, look after her. Give her 
peace. Father, give her peace. Take away my peace forever, but give her peace. Right? He's, he's praying for this little girl that he doesn't know. And it's a kind of foreshadowing of his suicide. Right. Right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting that uh, there's the, the image of God that, that you kind of get from Scobie is, well, it's very transactional, right? So there's got to be some suffering, right? So let me substitute my suffering for this other person's suffering. So, I mean, there's the, mm-hmm. the passage, the, the scene where uh, eventually he does go to communion uh, with Louise. And it says, you know, as he's kneel, kneeling at the altar rail, it says, he made one last attempt at prayer. Oh God, I offer up my damnation to you. Take it, use it for them. And then it says he was aware of the pale, papery taste of an eternal sentence on his tongue. This idea of, you know, God would accept the damnation of Scobie as a kind of an offering that would satisfy God. Right. It's a right. You you almost think that just like Louise becomes a mirror of Scobie's own unhappiness, he's also created a God who's simply a mirror of his own, I guess, unhappiness or sense of responsibility or or something. I don't know. Yeah. Well, yeah. So all of this, we haven't really talked about this that much, but all of the action of the novel is reflect is refracted through his Catholicism. Right. Right. So when he is working through, it enters into his thoughts and his feelings, but also his practical deliberation, right? It guides his choices and not now. It doesn't guide his choices in the correct way. Right? Right. Uh, he's he's obviously a bad Catholic, and he knows he's a bad Catholic. But a bad Catholic has to be a Catholic, right? And not just in the baptism sense, although that's a credible sense of being a Catholic. But you know, in the sense that he seems to believe this stuff, and I, I kind of wanted to talk about that, like. What kind of faith does he have? He Now, he seems to have a faith without hope, which, which is his real problem. He's completely given over to a kind of despair that seems unwarranted. But, of course, it's despair, so it has to be unwarranted. But um, his Catholicism is so much a part of his own story and his own self-image and I think we should just sort of talk about how his Catholicism gets twisted in various ways. Yeah, I mean, I think Scobie is a particular kind of bad Catholic. I mean, so there's all sorts of, you know, Catholics who are bad Catholics because they don't understand what the church teaches or mm-hmm. they, they, they have some idea of what the church teaches, but they don't pay much attention to it. But Scobie's a unique kind of bad Catholic who might only exist in Graham Greene novels, um, <laughs> who is firmly convinced of, as near as I can tell, all the teachings of the church, right? He's not a dissenter uh-huh. from the teachings of the church. I guess right. a different kind of, of bad Catholic, right? He both knows yeah. and, and embraces all the teachings of the church, at least in you know, what Newman would call with, with notional assent. Mm-hmm. But he, he convinces himself that he can't do what the church tells him is the good thing to do, the thing that will lead to eternal happiness. He's almost like, it's almost like he's a Catholic who doesn't care about eternal happiness for himself. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a real question about how psychologically convincing this is, right? Um, George Orwell Mm. reviewed The Heart of the Matter in The New Yorker, you know, when it it first came out. Oh, really? I'll I'll have to look at that. It's quite interesting. He intensely disliked the book. Oh, really? Yeah. He He liked The Power and the Glory, but he has an interesting observation. He says about The Power and the Glory, you've got this interesting antagonism between the priest and the police lieutenant, 
right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. mm-hmm. that they represent these two kinds of worldviews. You know, one focused on the next world, yes. one focused on this world. And he says that's, right. a, that's a believable tension. But Orwell found the tension within Scobie completely unbelievable. He said, how could somebody really believe that something would send them to hell and yet still believe that they were morally compelled to do that thing? Orwell found it completely unconvincing. I I don't find it unconvincing. Um, I think it's tricky to sort it out, but and and I think he's right to wonder. But I think, you know, we have to really dive into the condition that is despair. Right. So and if we take that, like what does hopelessness really look like? And at one point, Scobie says, despair is the price you pay for setting yourself an impossible aim. So he has convinced himself, wrongly, but he has convinced himself that he cannot be happy, right? And that, I think, is despair. And that, I think, I think involved in that posture is a rejection of grace and a rejection of God's love and also a rejection of mercy. Yeah, so yeah, so Thomas Aquinas says that love, both as a theological virtue but also simply as a passion, is it's what orients you towards a good that is difficult yet possible. Right? And right. I think for Scobie, he thinks happiness, either in this life or the next, is simply not possible for him, right? That's right. And I think, you know, this is speculative. I'm not sure I can totally defend this, but this squares with my experience of people who are like this. They hate themselves. So at the end of the day, they cannot believe that they are worthy of the kind of love that God is offering them. Yeah. I mean, I think the problem with Orwell's criticism of this is it's an easy criticism to make from somebody who doesn't believe in hell, right? Right, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. It's, a, it's very much a kind of an outsider's criticism, right? Right. And I think it's a, a worthwhile question of, you know, I, I say that Scobie's a kind of bad Catholic you only encounter in Graham Greene novels, but I don't really believe that because I think mm. in maybe less dramatic ways. I mean, the great thing about Greene's novels is you know, to use Flannery O'Connor's phrase, he draws large startling figures to kind of grab your attention, mm-hmm. right? But I think yeah. in smaller and less startling ways, I, I think a lot of people can identify with the kind of despair you see embodied in Scobie, right? The this right. sense of not really believing that happiness is something possible for you that the best you're going to do is get God to agree to accept your damnation for somebody else's good. I also think people can become in love in a perverse way with their own misery. And, uh, you know, how is this possible? How is it possible to say, which Catholics must say, right, that we are naturally ordered to our own good, that we naturally desire our own happiness, that this guides our practical reasoning, if that's true, how can you say that someone can fall in love with their own misery? I think you just have to get yourself into a place where you don't want to try anymore, right? So, and if you're in love with your own misery, then you can just kind of, <laughs> right? I mean, you don't, you don't have to actually go through the effort of being human anymore, which it is effort. It is a struggle. There's this really great, I I love this passage. I'm sorry because I didn't write down the page number, but I think this kind of speaks to what I'm talking about. It seemed to Scobie that life was immeasurably long. Couldn't the test of man have been carried out in fewer years? Couldn't we have committed our first major sin at seven, have ruined ourselves for love at 10, have clutched at redemption on a 15-year-old deathbed? I think this is very telling. Right? I mean, he's just, he's tired of it. Right, right. He's exhausted with the spiritual life. Yeah, or, or yeah, even, even even physical life, you know, he's, he's exhausted. So he's got this whole narrative he's telling himself when he, as he plots his own suicide, right, 
that he's doing it for Helen and Louise, right? Um, right. He says, uh, you know, I, I can't desert either of them while I'm alive, but I can die and remove myself from their bloodstream. They are ill with me and I can cure them, right? I mean, again, this sort right. of, I mean, there's self-loathing, but it's combined with a certain kind of egotism, right? So It's megalomaniacal. Exactly. So, I mean, I think <laughs> it's, it's, megalomaniacal. it's an interesting question about well, why, I mean, if we are naturally oriented towards happiness, you know, how is it possible mm. to love our own misery, right? I mean, that would seem to be, you'd be involved in some kind of con- contradiction, right? I mean, but Augustine talks about this in the Confessions, right? You know, being particularly when he's a young man and his friend dies, right? And he talks about carrying his lacerated heart around, and he and he talks about being in love with his own unhappiness. And there's this kind of self-dramatizing thing that you that, that young people get into, right? And, I mean, it's why they you know right. paint their fingernails black and you know pierce various parts of their bodies, right? It's a <laughs> It's, it's, you know, I want everyone to see just how unhappy I am because it, it somehow shows that I think a little bit more deeply. I mean, that's the other thing about mm-hmm. Scooby. You get this impression that he thinks he's the only one who ever thinks deeply about anything. Right. Yeah. There's also this um, just incredible passage. This is page 186. I, I just find this so striking. This is... He's like coming back from his mistress's like hut or apartment. I can't really figure out what that setup is. It's, it's a, a hut. hut. They yeah. call it a hut. I can't, I don't know how to imagine this in my head. But, um, he says, a drunken voice shouted somewhere up the hill and the first batter of the returning rain licked his face. He thought, I'll go back and go to bed and the morning I'll write to Louise and in the evening I'll go to confession. The day after that, God will return to me in a priest's hands. Life will be simple again. Virtue, the good life, tempted him in the dark like a sin. <laughs> I mean, he's gotten himself to the point where the good life, the happy life, the virtuous life is a temptation. Yeah, right. Because it's easy, right? So this is how we convince ourselves, you know, that, well, these people are taking the easy path, right? They're following all the rules. You know, they're, they're on that you know, they're on that path to heaven, but it's only because they're, you know, they're sheep, right? But I'm somebody who right. really, you know, sees the reality of the world's pain and only I can really fix it, right? So there's absolutely no trust in on his part that God could fix this situ- these situations, right? That's I mean, right. God's not That's responsible right. for Helen or Louise's happiness. Only Scobie is. No, I mean, he's, he's the savior here. And in the end, the story that he tells himself, I mean, spoiler alert, he kills himself. He does it as a kind of sacrificial offering, right, for others. I mean, it's kind of the inversion of the of the well, cross, Well, at one right? point he even says, well, didn't Jesus, in a sense, kill himself for the salvation of others? I mean, so he does, in a sense, make himself a Christ figure. I mean, you know, this... Yeah, but it's 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 a very perverse oh, imitation yeah, of yeah, Christ. Yeah. yeah. Very dark. And it is... I mean, on the one hand, it's sad, but then on the other hand, it's like... You almost want to laugh. The operative word there is almost. Because, again, he's just so confused. Or he's... Sorry, confused is the right word. But he's so convinced that... The happiness of these women depends on him as if he is their final end and good, which, of course, he isn't. And he sort of sets it up like, you know, like God is forcing him to hurt people as if, one, he weren't already managing that perfectly fine on his own, right? As if he weren't already hurting both of these women. And two, like they're just going to collapse without him. And both of those are highly questionable. Well, this... And... I was going to say, yeah, this, sorry, this is ahead. one of the things that, that Green said. I mean, Green, after the novel came out, I mean, he said that... He described Scobie as a character who sort of got away from him in that, at least in retrospect... And yeah. I, it's very hard to figure out exactly what Green intended when he was actually writing the novel. Uh, but in retrospect, 
what he said was he did not intend for people to see Scobie as a hero. He intended them to see him, to see in him the way in which pity and pride go together. And yet yeah, people I like that. People treated Scobie as if Green intends him to be somebody you look up to, when in fact he's not. Now, I'm not Well, I don't I mean, that's just not careful reading. He does not write him in a way where you would want to look up but to him. But then there's that there's the strange well, there's the problem in the novel of the very beginning and the very end. And what I mean by that is at the very beginning, he begins with that quotation from Peggy, uh, where he says, the mm-hmm. sinner is at the very heart of Christianity. No one is, is more competent, I guess, than the sinner in the matter of Christianity. No one except for the saint, right? And so there's this kind of this line from Peggy that tends to set you up for the idea that the sinner is somehow at least it can be read as the sinner is is somehow being romanticized, right? And then at the end, where Louise is talking with the priest, and the priest says, you know, the church knows all the rules, but it doesn't know what goes on in a single human heart. I think from what I saw of him that he really loved God, right? And mm-hmm. so if you focus on those things, or if you let those things frame the narrative, you can kind of think the green is trying to make you think that Scobie is offering some kind of noble sacrifice, right? I mean, I'm willing to take green at his word that that was not his intention, but certainly a lot of people read the book that way. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, so one thing that I really want to talk about, well, two things. Um, One is his actual suicide and what happens. His suicide reminds me of, Madame Bovary, you know, it doesn't happen quickly. I mean, I think she takes arsenic or something. He takes a bunch of sleeping pills, but like it takes a while, you know? So like they ingest their respective poisons and then they're like waiting. (laughs) And there's sort of like the psychology of like waiting to die by suicide. And it makes it clear it's not an impulsive act on his part. Oh, no, it's completely deliberate. His full person is involved in this. It is a, it is a mortal sin in in the classic sense that he he knows it's a sin, he deliberates, he chooses it, knowing it's a sin, right? So it's malice, <laughs> it's malice. There's there's no confusion about that. But I think Green leaves it open. I think he leaves it ambiguous whether or not in the time that it actually takes him to die, whether or not he repents or or feels regret or feels sorrow because there's there's like this voice that is invoked in these final chapters. And the voice is clearly meant to be the voice of God or at least what Scobie thinks is the voice of God. Sometimes he says solitude itself has a voice but this voice is saying to him don't do this right throw away these tablets don't do it and this actually gives him the courage to do it is this voice telling him not to he's like throwing them back then he's trying to say the act of contrition he's trying to pray you know like as he is dying then it's like something is happening with him he cries out right? He hears this voice again, and he's trying to reply. And the last thing that he says out loud is, dear God, I love. And then dot, dot, dot. Like, we don't know. Right. But I think Green is leaving it intentionally ambiguous. Like, he's leaving it open that something could have changed in Scobie. Yeah, though I think the question is, I mean, how, I mean, I don't want to put any limits on the mercy of God. <laughs> and I, and in that sense, I think the book is correct at the end, right? When the priest says to Luigi, you know, neither you nor I know anything at all about God's mercy, right? On the other hand, how com- convincing is it that somebody whose character seems so malformed could suddenly have this change of heart. I mean, I think as 
as a Catholic, I'm I'm compelled to believe it, right? That that, that these last minute conversions, deathbed conversions, are are possible. On the other hand, in terms of just a novel and the character, right? I think Grant, I think Green has a hard time pulling it off, right? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I think it's left ambiguous intentionally. And I think a similar thing happens at the end of The Power and the Glory. We don't know what's up with the whiskey priest at the end, and we're not supposed to. I think that tension is something that is part of his vision as a novelist. I mean, I think it's true that we don't know God's mercy we shouldn't pretend that we do. And it's also true that we don't really know the hearts of men. And it seems to me that as a novelist, he's trying to capture that mystery in some way. And he's not going to give us a tidy resolution. Right. Certainly not a, not a tidy re- resolution. So we cannot say at the end, well, he's damned himself. I don't think that Graham Greene thinks we can say that. Otherwise, I don't know what this whole scene is about. Right. I, I mean... I mean, he's not just making a clever reference to, like, Flaubert. Right. I don't think he's that kind of novelist. Right. And, no, I think... I mean, I think that's right. And I think it's right to, to say, you know, there's... We can't know. I mean, I think that's as much a theological principle as, you know, the criteria for a mortal sin, right? But what I wonder is about how you try and depict this narratively, right? So you you spend your novel depicting Scobie as, you know, this, this oddly prideful person who revels in his own misery and is convinced that he is completely responsible for the happiness of those around him. And I, I guess I'm just wondering how narratively you can portray that kind of conversion. There's a part of me that thinks that this has got to be something, uh, this kind of conversion is something that is so interior and so dependent upon mm-hmm. God's grace that it's very mm-hmm. hard to portray na- narratively, right? So I yeah. think, I mean, I, I think that Green is trying to do it. There's a part of me that wonders how successfully he can do it or how successfully anybody could do it. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I'd have to think about what I would think the conditions of success or failure would be in that case but I do think it's interesting that towards the end there is this voice and it never came up before but it comes up when he is you know plotting his suicide and it comes up in the moment of his suicide and in fact ends up being the catalyst of his actually going through with it because he's kind of lost his courage but that voice is the first occasion that really penetrates, it kind of pierces the veil in a sense. You know, it kind of rips back the curtain a little bit on his story about himself. And I think that whatever the final consequence of whatever Scobie sees, I think we don't know. Right. But I think it's, you know, it really is the first time that, anything really ever breaks through and it's in it I, I i mean i think it's clearly god's grace this voice it's not what scoby wants to hear so it's not at all clear that like oh well you know god's i mean it's it kind of reminds me of flannery o'connor a little bit like you can see the action of grace but you're never really certain about where it went but but it does introduce an element of hopefulness and what otherwise looks like a very dark story. Right. And it's something, it's a, an external in a, uh, intervention, you might say, because Scobie is so mm-hmm. locked into himself, right? Mm-hmm. And into his own ego that there's, there's no way he can find his own way out, right? That's right. And he, on 259, he has... This is another instance where, you know, there's the voice. But he, in this case, Scobie replies, right? And he says, no, I don't trust you. 
I've never trusted you. If you made me, you made this feeling of responsibility that I've always carried about like a sack of bricks. I'm not a policeman for nothing, responsible for order, for seeing justice is done. There was no other profession for a man of my kind. I cannot shift my responsibility to you. If I could, I would be someone else. I can't make one of them suffer so as to save myself. I'm responsible and I'll see it through the only way I can. Right? So he is, he's firmly convinced, right, that this, that this is what he has to do. It is interesting, you know, that Scobie, and this is one of the things that Orwell actually points out in his review, both, both about the heart of the matter and about Brighton Rock, is that you have these characters who seem extraordinary, who are in, other, in many ways very unsophisticated, and I think he's thinking of Pinky and Brighton Rock, who seem very, very well-schooled in Catholic doctrine. <laughs> but, I mean, one of the things, Scobie does have an almost Pelagian attitude towards all this, Right. I mean, it's all about his responsibility, yeah. his action. That's right. And even, say, like the grace of the sacraments, right? Well, it's still all dependent upon what Scobie can and can't do, right? Can he make a firm right. amendment of purpose, right? So in some ways, I, I read somewhere, and I, I can't remember exactly where, but that one of the things that Green was trying to depict in The Heart of the Matter was a character who would plausibly damn themselves, right? If there's this idea that, you know, mm. ultimately everyone who, if anyone is damned, anyone who would be damned would damn themselves. And as you've already pointed That's out, right. if human beings are created with a, you know, or natural orientation towards the good and towards beatitude and happiness, how could damnation ever be possible, right? And, and in some That's ways, right. I think Green is trying to depict here a case in which while damnation might not be certain, right, as he makes clear at the end, right. it's at least plausible, right? How could someone right. choose against their own eternal happiness? That's right. Yeah. And that is the mystery of sin, right? How is it that, you know, that the church understands sin as choosing a lesser good, right? And choosing a lesser good as good. Even when Scobie says, right? I'm choosing my own damnation. He's doing it because he thinks it's good. He thinks it's the right thing to do. He thinks it's like his duty almost to damn himself. So he's not choosing it. He's choosing it under some aspect in which he can see it as desirable or choiceworthy. And so there's this like mystery about like, well, how could you do that? You know? And I think that that's, you know, that the psychology of sin is one of the things that is being wonderfully explored here, right? How is it that we are constantly choosing against what we actually know is our own good? There is a mystery there. But I think he is, I think it's showing how it plays out in this one person. You start to get a sense of, not the mechanisms of it, that's the wrong word, but sort of like the logic of it and how it involves, you know, this kind of failure to pay attention, how it involves pride, right? How you can kind of see all these things coming together to explain what otherwise just looks crazy, for the sake of like a philosophy paper, right? If you just sort of wrote out the practical syllogism, you'd be like, well, that's, that's crazy. <laughs> right, know, like, right. But what's behind the syllogism, right? Yeah. But there's it, a person behind it. I mean, this is one reason why I, I am so interested in the, the sort of the dynamics of self-deception in the story, because it seems to me that if you're going to choose against your own good, there's got to be some level in which you are sin you are both sincerely convinced that this lesser good that you are choosing is a genuine good, right? The highest good, mm -hmm. and yet in yeah. some in some sense you also still have to be morally responsible for it, right? I mean, if That's damnation right. is possible, yeah. if there is such a thing as damnation, you would have to both be able to choose a lesser good as your highest good, and in order to do that, you would have to in some way have convinced yourself that that lesser good is your higher good. And yet that 
self-deception has not absolved you of moral responsibility, right? Yeah. And so, you know, the way that other forms of ignorance might, right? I mean, you know, Aquinas, when he talks about this, he's always, he uses the example, all these examples from hunting accidents, right? You know, you shoot an arrow down the road and without any way, and you accidentally kill someone, you know, well, then Mm -hmm. you're, you're not morally responsible, right? You, you were ignorant of where your arrow was going to land. You did your due diligence and all that, but you know, there are ways you could convince yourself that say you're shooting at a deer and you actually end up shooting your dreaded enemy, right? That's uh, right. But you were in a position That's to right. know that it was actually your dreaded enemy, but you chose not That's to right. attend to that, right? Well, then you would be morally responsible. That's right. And I think, um, you know, it's, so w- one of the things that we haven't talked about is the fact that Scobie knows that ignorance isn't going to excuse him, right? He thinks that it will excuse Helen. She's not Catholic, but he says, we Catholics are damned by our knowledge, right? And so he knows that he can't plead ignorance as an excuse. I mean, ignorance is like the least interesting cause of sin. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's just boring. He knows that that's not what's wrong with him. So when Aquinas talks about the three fundamental sources of sin, he talks about ignorance he talks about weakness, so disordered passions, which is also not Scopey's problem. And then he talks about malice, right? Right. And malice is a problem of the will, and its root cause is pride. Well, he thinks the root cause of every sin is ultimately pride, but like especially malice. And and I and I think that's being explored here as well. And I, I love what you said about the connection between pity and pride because that seems spot on. And, you know, pride is an inordinate desire for one's own excellence. Operative word there being inordinate. And I think this is really subtle in Scobie because you can think of the proud man as someone who's like very puffed up and that doesn't look like Scobie. I think his pride is more subtle and it's also connected to a kind of self-hatred, which I also think is an element of this. You know, it's also there in Aquinas. It's also there in Augustine. You know, if you if you don't love yourself, you're not actually capable of, of loving other people. And I think that's part of what is going wrong with Scobie too. Um, as I think, and it's interesting to think about how you can simultaneously be proud, have an inordinate sense of your own excellence, and also kind of hate yourself. But I think that you see it. I, I think you see it in in this in this character. Yeah, yeah. I, I I think that's. I mean, I think that's right. And I think that you know, trying to understand the dynamics of malice you know, is is really is really challenging, right? Mm-hmm. Particularly, I mean, the you know, you mentioned passion as one of the sources of sin. I mean, what's one of the things that's really interesting and and slightly disturbing about Scobie is his lack of passion. I mean, even the affair with with Helen, at least as he narrates it, as as he understands it, it's not born out of any great passion. It's born simply out of pity. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. And so Scobie, um, you know, he doesn't really have ignorance. I mean, there's a, there, except the ignorance of self-deception, but but he doesn't have genuine ignorance as an excuse, right? Mm-hmm. He, he doesn't really have passion. Mm-hmm. So all that's really left is malice. And malice is just mm-hmm. very puzzling because it seems to be a pure desire for a lesser good done in, yeah. in knowledge of the fact that it's a lesser good, <laughs> Right. It's not. It's not a mistake. Yeah. Malice isn't rooted in an error, right? It's that's right. You know, so Aquinas and Augustine too, and actually, you know, the whole tradition. Of course, where you really see this is in you know discussions of the fall of Satan, right? Because Satan, yes. being an angel, yes. is completely without passion <laughs> and completely without right. ignorance, right? No, it's, it's like all it's, malice. It's malice. It's only malice. It's malice part. Yeah. It's malice par excellence. And in some ways, Scobie, you could say. You know, Green is trying to create a kind of a satanic figure, right? Somebody without ignorance, somebody without passion, who mm-hmm. acts out of malice, but malice masquerading as pity. That's right. Yeah, and I think, yeah, I think there's a, I think there's a lot there. 
because it's not the kind of satanic figure that we're used to. It's more subtle. Um, it's also, I think, just much more common. And I think it's, I think in a way it's tied to a certain conception of masculinity. Like there are, I mean, this is like a real thing where men are attracted to women who are like sad and vulnerable because they want to be like the knight, you know, that rides in on the white horse and saves them. And I think there's a little bit of that in Scobie as well that connects it to his pride. But he's completely, he's completely unwilling to like deal with this. Yeah, maybe instead of toxic masculinity, we need to talk about satanic masculinity. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm sure that'll go. Yeah, why don't you start a Twitter thread on that, Fritz? I'm sure that'll go over well. <laughs> but, but there is this, I mean, there is this sense in which, you know, you can think about, you know, the fall of Satan as a kind of, uh, well, only I can fix it, right? Satan yeah. convinces himself, you know, well, I'm, I That's can right. run this, only I can really run this creation. God clearly is not up to the task, right? That's right, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that I really love Aquinas' discussion of the fall of the devil, but I think, to be honest, it raises more questions than it, than it settles at the end of the day. And I just think that there is, there's a lot you can say about sin, but I think there's something deeply mysterious about it. Well, this is one of one of the things I think is is actually a genuine strength of privation accounts of evil is that if evil is privation, then pure evil would have to be some kind of pure privation, which I think is probably metaphysically impossible. But mm -hmm. the fact that we can't wrap our minds around something that is a privation, I mean, makes a kind of right. sense, right? And right. I think privation accounts yeah. of evil underscore the absurdity you know that's at, at that's at the root of evil yeah yeah and one thing that i one thing that i really appreciate about graham green is that he's able to talk about evil and malice in a way that isn't isn't so extreme right like i think that in one sense scobie is finds himself in a very recognizable predicament right you know, how many married people are lonely and find themselves having an affair and then realize like, oh my gosh, I've created a problem I can't solve. And no matter what I do, I'm going to hurt a lot of people, including myself. But he like shows how complicated and twisted this can all get and where it might end, but also where it might not end. Because I think, again, he leaves it ambiguous about Scobie at that end. Right. I don't think that we should be comfortable in thinking that he really did manage to carry off. But so, so I think he wants to leave us uncomfortable that Scobie was successful in his project of damning himself. <laughs> it may be that God kind of caught him at the end. I just think it's completely intentionally ambiguous. Yeah. No, I think that's, I agree. I agree. Okay. Last question. Sure. So we're, we're too, Catholics who, you know, are really intellectuals reading this novel and loving it. Probably not everybody's <laughs> relationship <laughs> to the book. Uh, you know, what, what can a non catholic I mean, you mentioned Orwell's review and, and how you thought maybe Orwell didn't get it. I mean, like, what can a non-Catholic get out of this novel, given how Catholic it is? This is a very Catholic novel. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, I mean, I suppose what you can do is you can simply accept the terms of Scobie's worldview, right? Mm -hmm. You can accept that, you know, he at least believes that certain actions will lead to his eternal damnation, right? And you can look at it as a kind of psychological study of why somebody would act against their own good. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I, I think you can, you can see it as a kind of a psychological portrait. I mean, it's interesting. Mm -hmm. The book was a, like a runaway bestseller. I think it was the best-selling book that Green had written up to that time. It's really good. It is. I mean, it's it's wonderfully written. It's, you know, I mean, Scobie is a fascinating character. One of the dangers of the novel, Green himself recognized, was that you can get so sucked into Scobie's 
vision of the world and of his situation that you can simply take it at face value, right? This could be, mm-hmm. oh yeah, Scooby really is in a unfixable situation and he really chooses the noble way out, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think yeah. that my you know, 20-year-old self who read this book was more inclined to that reading to see Scobie as somehow, you know, tragically heroic. Mm, I would love to see a poll of men who think that versus <laughs> women who think that. I, well, I think in the ensuing, you know, 40 years, I've talked to a lot more women than I had when I was 20 years old. Mm-hmm. And that alone would have uh, changed my perspective on Scobie. Yeah. I do think you can be seduced into it. And I think maybe that'd be more of a danger for a non-Catholic than for a Catholic to be Mm -hmm. seduced by Scobie's story, Mm -hmm. to see it as something noble. I think if you're at least a, what would I call it, a convinced Catholic, you're going to, there's going to be things that are going to be ringing false to you in his narration. But I think even a non-Catholic can see it as a, as a psychological study of, of how people can act against their own good, how people can mire themselves in false understandings of themselves and of the people around them, right? Right. I mean, clearly Scobie has no idea really who Helen or Louise are. Right. He's completely clueless as to who they are as people. That's right. And I think is kind of uninterested in who they are, honestly. They're Um, just players in his, his personal drama. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I wish we could keep talking, but we're we're over my we're over my limit. But um, this was just this was just an amazing conversation. So thank you for coming on. Well, thanks for inviting me. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I love talking about Graham Greene. You've been listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a philosophy, theology, and literature podcast that is generously underwritten by the Institute of Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America and produced by Catholics for Hire, a group of young Catholic digital content freelancers. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Just go to www.patreon.com slash to become a monthly patron. For our next episode, I'll be joined by the philosopher Kevin Combo to discuss Sophocles' Oedipus Rex. Until then, friends, be well and keep reading.